Welcome to Stars and Swords, I'm Alistair Stevens. This week, in our fourth session discussing V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, we get to some of those long-awaited revelations. We reframe our understanding of what exactly is happening in this story, and we accelerate our pace toward the end of the book. As I said last week, this is going to be a long reading, all of parts four and five, so let's waste no time. Let's get right to it. The first of the curated art pieces that we'll cover this week is particularly interesting in a number of different ways, partly because, unlike the other curated pieces we've discussed, this one isn't connected to Addie, but rather to Henry, which, much like the first curated piece in the book, the sculpture of the wooden birds on the marble plinth, might make us wonder as to its inclusion in whatever hypothetical collection we're supposed to be touring. The second thing to notice is the ironic title of the piece. Open to love would ordinarily be considered a good thing, something receptive and welcoming and positive, but in the description we see how the idea here has been inverted. Love flows freely from within the heart, emptying it constantly. Furthermore, we see that it flows indiscriminately, that there's no significance attached to the vessel into which that love is poured, only that it passes from the heart, which forces us to reconsider what we normally think of, well, to, to half-quote Raymond Chandler, to reconsider what we talk about when we talk about love. Because here, the love is given, it is poured in, but this heart cannot hold it, cannot contain it, cannot be filled. The third thing to note is that it is designed by Muriel Strauss, Henry's sister, the critic and cultivator of art, and in a brilliant, subtle bit of commentary, we get the description of the mechanism of the heart itself and the background information. It's part of a collection on the theme of family and that Muriel insists, a very specific word choice there, insists that it is, quote, an homage to the exhaustions of serial monogamy and a testament to the dangers of unbalanced affection, end quote, which is excellent because, as implied by the somewhat judgmental use of that word, insists, no, it isn't. Or at least, that could be the artistic intent, but that's neither what is physically represented by the indiscriminate pouring, by the multiple holes, by the complicity of the viewer in the art who has to pour each of the various liquids in the first place. Muriel's interpretation of her own work is flawed. It doesn't make any sense as a self-contained metaphor, particularly for serial monogamy, and it certainly doesn't work, as we'll see on the very next page, as a representation of Henry. And we might take this a step further, noting that Muriel designs but does not create this piece of art. In this way, we might be tempted to draw a connection between Muriel and Addie herself, who is amused to so many artists, including the other pieces of art curated in these structural interstitions. Addie, though, doesn't influence the art itself, and certainly doesn't seek to criticize it, to break it down, to analyze it, to understand it. She plants the seeds and then steps back, letting the skilled hands of the artists make the thing, bringing their own meaning. Muriel is trying to unfold interpretation into the genesis of the creative act, into the seed itself. And the interpretation is both superficially and therefore more profoundly flawed. And I know I've been a little critical of Henry in the last couple of weeks, and I want to take those reins and reorient our discussion just a little bit as we move into the rest of the reading, because while I don't love Henry as a co-protagonist of this book, and I don't like the specifics of the depressive disorder as they are at least superficially presented as actual clinical factors in our understanding of a real person's mental health, I have to say that I mostly love Henry as a fairy tale character. In his most archetypal interpretation, he feels like a character from Oz or from Wonderland, the broken down boy with the leaking heart, all big Tim Burton eyes. In fact, in fact, yes, Henry in my imagination looks exactly like Victor from Corpse Bride. It's true. And now that I've said it, you can't unsee it. 
Even as we integrate that realization, though, with the more naturalistic mode of the story, as we pull the fairy tale into the real world, feeling it stretch just a little, he still mostly works, Byronic and distant and tragic and romantic. I should also mention an email that I received this week from Aaron, who wanted to contest a point that I made last week about Henry's depressive disorder, and in a broader sense, Henry's you know entire emotional deal, from his relationships to his friends, his family, his actual deal with Luke. I said last time that Henry's interiority wasn't metaphorized by the book, unlike Addie's, and that that made Henry's story more difficult to connect with, more difficult to understand. And Aaron pointed out, of course, that we do get an extensive metaphorization of Henry's conditions throughout this part of the book, and that's absolutely true. And moreover, as I said, I think it's a very effective bit of poetic, metaphorical storytelling. The distinction that I would draw, and what I really meant last week, is that Henry's condition, his being, his Henryness doesn't imprint itself on the structure of the book, on, on the shape of the story, the way that Addie's does. Her interiority and her personality and her identity, perhaps ironically particularly her identity, is the book. It's where we begin and it's where we end and the pauses we take in between. Part four of the novel hands control of the narrative to Henry, in effect, but we never occupy his space as fully as we do Addie's. Or... To put that another way, she never completely relinquishes control, and nor, would I argue, should she. And I think that Schwab does some beautiful work distinguishing between the two narrative voices, and in some of the more evocative explorations of Henry's experience. But fundamentally, this is a book about engaging with Addie's experience, and Henry doesn't exert enough influence or enough gravity or enough identity to really warp the book around him. We'll look at some specifics as we go on, but... On a higher level, yes, Aaron, you're absolutely right. There is a metaphor for Henry's condition within the book, and it absolutely works. It's just that Henry's experience isn't enfolded into the structure of the story the way that Addie's is, which isn't a problem in and of itself, except when the narrative wants us to be as close to Henry as it wants us to be to Addie. I hope I've gone some distance toward clarifying that point, and thank you, as always, Aaron, for your email. Speaking of Schwab's skill in the narrative voice, the transition into part four proper is bracing. It is a cold autumnal rain after the warmth of the narrative voice when we're focused on Addie. The shift in voice is excellently done. It is consistent in as much as we stay in a similar perspective and we move closer to and further from the subject just as we do in the rest of the book, but the specifics are the thing. It's the fragmentary sentences, it's the repetition, it's the elevation, and then the descent into bluntness. Addie's narrator is poetic. Henry's is hurting, is ragged. And here's an unanswered question. Is the presentation of Henry's account in the second person an attempt to connect empathetically, sympathetically with the reader... Or is it the externalization of a feeling that Henry doesn't feel that he owns? When we blink and you're halfway through school, you're 24, you meet a girl, is this Henry's narrator seeking to connect with you, the reader, with us, the readers, by drawing us in with the second-person intimacy? Or is this Henry pushing away his own experience into the somewhat safe receptacle of a second-person avatar, where it might be better understood or at least not so emotionally immediate? I don't know. I'd be interested in hearing what you guys think about that. So here again, we get the value, the utility of the metaphor and the strain that it puts on the narrative frame. Quote, a boy is born with a broken heart. The doctors go in and piece it back together, make it whole, and the baby is sent home, lucky to be alive. They say he is better now, that he can live a normal life, and yet as he grows up, he is convinced something is still wrong inside. End quote. 
And as a fairy tale, as a Tim Burton story, as a Neil Gaiman story, this is great. This is evocative and romantic and tragic, though it does fall apart when we transition into the more naturalistic mode of the novel, when we want Henry to not be a romantic archetype, but to be a real person. And we should be careful to note here that it explicitly isn't about serial monogamy and unbalanced affection. Henry feels everything too much, from the arguing between his parents or the loss of his childhood toy or any of the other experiences recounted on the first page of this chapter. The other aspect of Henry's that's introduced here is this rudderless lack of ambition, his sense that he doesn't have a calling, what I described last week when Addie was investigating his room as a certain dilettantism. And though the narrative will occasionally return to this aspect and consider it to be a part of his larger condition, his Henryness, it seems as though there's something larger happening here. It seems as though we're hinting toward a kinship with Addie, I guess we can infer, in that Henry wants everything, but Unlike Addie's rapacious hunger for the world, Henry's desire is to avoid picking a single path. And that is an ironic inversion. Addie wants everything. Henry doesn't want just one thing. That difference between a positive and a negative goal, well, it's metaphorically powerful, but it's also a lovely recognition of what makes a protagonist a protagonist. From there, the narrative loses a little of its power because we do return to that more naturalistic mode. Henry stops being a fairy tale character and becomes, you know, a dude. We can even see this happen structurally, kind of. And I suppose this takes us on a brief digression into typography because we have to note how frequently in the first part of this chapter, the story is broken up by those subsection breaks, the little scatter of stars in the print edition. Those subsection breaks, by the way, were originally called asterisms, three asterisks in a triangular formation that indicated a shift in tone or an illusion of time or a shift in perspective or a change of pace, a typographical semicolon, leaving trailing connections between the two sections. Asterisms fell out of use, being generally replaced by three asterisks in a row or some other more personal, more specific graphical break, as we see here. These more generalized subsection breaks are brilliantly called Dinkuses, which comes to English from the Dutch and German words ding, meaning a thing, something you don't know the name of, a, a, a whatchamacallit. But, and this is my pedantic point, since Addie LaRue uses stars as a section break, I think we can make an argument that these are also asterisms, and then we don't have to use the word dinkus. Anyway, asterisms or dinkuses or whatever you want to call them, these section breaks are very frequent in the first part of this chapter when we're in this more distant, more immediate though, right? More emotionally immediate, but second person fairy tale mode. When we return to a closer point of view, they fall out of the prose, leaving us with this more fragmentary, shattered, leaking kind of narrative. Quote, he doesn't blame them for that. Not now, not after. He knows he's not an easy friend, knows he should have seen it coming, should have. The bottle slips through his fingers, shatters on the sidewalk, and he should leave it there, but he doesn't. He reaches to pick it up, but he loses his balance. His hand comes down on broken glass as he pushes himself back up. It hurts. Of course it hurts. But the pain is dampened a little by the vodka, by the well of grief, by his ruined heart, by everything else. End quote. And this, of course, is a response to the narrative seeding of the blood-stained handkerchief and the ring that Addie found in Henry's bedroom. But really what we're seeing here is this fractured immediacy, which only gets worse as we move into the end of the chapter and the prose dissolves in the rain, leaving nothing but tumbling fragments. I won't quote the whole thing. I do think it is exceptional. This is where we end up. Quote, We can't help who we fall in love with and who we don't. You're such a good friend. You're going to make the right girl happy. You deserve better. Let's stay friends. I don't want to lose you. It's not you. I'm sorry. End quote. And for me, 
the magic trick here is that we found Henry again in the fairy tale within the naturalistic, that here, close enough to Henry that we can't even properly contextualize the narrative, that we get only immediacy, sharp-edged and bitter. For me, here again, Henry works. And here too, we're seeing a different kind of second-person narrative, Henry himself being relocated away from that narrative voice that's become reflective of the words of others. It's a complicated and ambitious move that obviously understands how important it is to this book that the reader both gets and gives a damn about Henry. I think it's wildly successful. In the next chapter, well, in the next chapter we have a challenge, because this is a very important part of the book that doesn't completely play fair with the reader for reasons which will only become apparent in next week's reading. So, on the one hand, I want to take it on its own terms, but also acknowledge that this isn't exactly real. The first and most important thing, I guess, is that Luke and Henry really do look like Addie's stranger. A careful reader may have been wondering up to this point how much that is true, particularly if you're inclined to speculate about what Henry's deal is. But here, as Henry recognizes his brother David, and therefore himself, in Luke, we can set that speculation aside. We also get this interesting beat that Luke knows Henry's name, and we can assume, of course, that Luke, given his powers, simply knows things like that, and perhaps we might remember that he knew Adeline's name back in Vion 300 years ago, too, but we might also remember that his first use of Adeline's name is immediately preceded by the italicized shouts from her mother and father calling that name, searching for her. In any case, we now get the articulation of Henry's deal with the devil. Quote, You want to be loved, says the stranger, by all of them. You want to be enough for all of them. And I can give that to you for the price of something you won't even miss. The stranger holds out his hand. Well, Henry, what do you say? End quote. And now we can rewind through the book, just like Addie would, with flashes of memory accelerating into the past, and we can reconsider what we know of Henry. We can make sense of these odd interactions with the fairy at the Midsummer Night's Dream, and with Robbie, and with Bee, and the bartender at the fourth rail, and the customers in the last word, and so on, and so on. We might also even infer what he was looking for in Addie's eyes at their first meeting that made her seem so special. And there's a thing that we must acknowledge here that isn't in any way Fun, and it isn't even in any way complex, and it isn't even, I would argue, particularly important to the book. But the truth is, we are skirting some serious issues of consent in this book. Whether it's Henry's magical stardust that makes him just irresistible, or it's Addie's repetition of certain behaviors in order to coerce other behaviors from other people, and it's kind of inescapably gross if we're reading this as a straight, naturalistic, in-the-real-world kind of story. Because consent depends upon being properly informed, and neither Henry nor Addie's conquests can really be properly informed, and thus cannot give consent. But here's the thing. These are the products of a deal with, for want of a better word, the devil. This is some dark magic, and this, I would argue, is part of the point of the book. We are not supposed to feel okay about Henry sleeping with whoever he wants. We're supposed to think that it is sketchy, that it ought not to be done, because it's part of something tainted, something impure, something of the darkness. And the same goes for Addie, and if anything, more so, since there's nothing magical about Addie that predisposes people to help her, so her manipulations, as we saw in the salon during last week's reading, are necessarily more elaborate. Which... Since we're talking about the sexual politics of a book that doesn't really support a sexually political reading, let's take a moment to observe one of the ways in which this book stays staunchly and firmly in its fairy tale mode. Sex is completely decoupled from any question of sexual health or pregnancy. 
The only mention of pregnancy in the book is Roger's wife, Pauline, who dies young and is the reason for Adeline's imminent marriage back in Vion. The only mention of babies are Isabella's children. There's a fantasy flash of Addie where she imagines what life with Roger would have been like, and there's the mention of the boy born with the broken heart at the beginning of today's reading. There is, to the best of my recollection and to the extent of my study, no mention of birth control or sexually transmitted diseases or even the potential emotional consequences of casual sex. Can we happily speculate that Luke's deal removes such concerns from Henry, from Addie? Well... Such a reading isn't incompatible with the text, but it isn't explicitly stated. It may well fit into the shape of the story as a whole. And that's the real conclusion right there, in that the fairy tale mode of the story doesn't care about these mundanities. It's instead a fantasy, where sex is either the metaphorical realization of romantic attraction, as it is between Addie and Henry, say, or Addie and Remy, or in a way that is absolutely pushed aside by the focus of the text, it's a distraction. It's a release in exactly the way that Henry's experiments with self-medication are a release. It is a thing that can itself be used and can be used without consequence. And you know, even as I say that the book doesn't support a sexually political reading, I want to recant that point, I think, because of course the book does offer a sexually political reading and it's emphatic. It's just neither complex nor comprehensive. The sexual politics of this book are simple. A person's pleasure, particularly a woman's pleasure, belongs to that person and no one else, to the extent that we might speculate in the pages of the book how much other people are even touched by sexual pleasure. And if you're wondering whether that reduces some of the supporting characters in this book to a less developed, less independent, less fully realized state, then you're right. More on that later. And more on how this issue intersects with the book's general view on morality, on virtue, on what is good next week. What I'll say for now, and I guess that this is a continuation of some threads that I've been following for the last couple of sessions too, is that the book may not be what it appears to be, but that doesn't mean that it isn't powerful. It doesn't mean that it isn't important. And so, having covered 10 pages or so of the 140 that we need to cover this week, let's turn our attention to chapter 3, and this is where we cut back to the present in the aftermath of Henry's story, and we get Addie's explanation of what is happening. Quote, You're dealing mine. They nest like Russian dolls together in a shell. I look at you and I see exactly what I want. It's just that what I want has nothing to do with looks or charm or success. It would sound awful in another life, but what I want most, what I need, has nothing to do with you at all. What I want, what I've always truly wanted, is for someone to remember me. That's why you can say my name. That's why you can go away and come back and still know who I am. And that's why I can look at you and see you as you are. And it is enough. It will always be enough. End quote. And this is really interesting because this is, as we'll see in due course, the second time this week, the second time in this very short extract of the book, that the book isn't playing fair with us. In this case, it isn't playing fair in order to give us some genuine insight on Addie. Because here's the thing, she is right. The book is going to skip right over it, and Henry's fear of insufficiency will cling to the words she says without interrogating the deeper meaning. But right here, Addie does lay out what is true from her perspective. Henry will be enough for her because he remembers her and that's it. She acknowledges even that it would sound awful in another life, in another book, in another narrative tone, in a different kind of story. But in this story, this is all she needs from him. And it takes narrative courage for the story to lay out the emotional truth, but to do it with such clarity and concision that the reader wants to skip past it, to do exactly as Henry does, to focus on the words which we want to hear and ignore the rest. And 
You'll note at the end of this very short chapter that we are back in Henry's POV, thinking about his lie of omission. And, well, that's a reveal that's waiting for us next week. But in that POV, we skip over what Addie is really saying and focus instead on what matters most to Henry. And to be clear, I don't think that Addie is objectively right in this passage for reasons that we will discuss next week, but here she is at least unburdening herself of her own emotional truth. Henry and Addie share a moment in The Last Word in which they discuss Henry's fleeting interest in photography and the possibility of fixing happy moments in time like they're suspended in amber, but mostly the scene exists to double down on Muriel being pretty awful so that when she shows up in the next chapter, we can feel the magnitude of Henry's deal with Luke. In the past, we introduce Henry's magical watch, and then Muriel stops by to be, yeah, very simply, supportive. And we see that the consequence of Henry's deal is that basically everyone will orbit him and prioritize his emotional well-being, which is a juvenile kind of fantasy, an adolescent kind of daydream that, again, kind of obliviates the interiority of others and places them in service to you and your emotional well-being, which, no coincidence, is exactly what Addie said about Henry's sufficiency being anchored in his memory of her. We are objectifying others. So let's reduce this still further, in fact, and try to distill out what will be, I think, an important interpretive tool that we can use next week to fully understand the ending, to fully understand the entirety of this book. And this isn't jumping the timeline, because everything that we need has just been presented to us here at the beginning of part four. Both Addie and Henry have made deals with Luke. Both Addie and Henry, to some degree and in various ways, after their deals with Luke, are ignoring or dismissing or overwhelming the interiority of other characters, of other people. This is sometimes intentional, such as Addie manipulating Madame Geoffrin to gain access to the salon, or Henry hooking up with the fairy girl from Robbie's play, and it is sometimes unintentional, as with Addie and Sam on the rooftop, or Henry and, at least initially, Vanessa the barista. This denial of selfhood, this implicit manipulation and denial of consent, turns the people that Addie and Henry interact with into objects, into tools of emotional or physical or sexual gratification or comfort. This, it must be emphasized, is not cool. And though both characters are aware of it and try to navigate it with a certain moral sense or at least feel a certain moral friction, they also both indulge themselves repeatedly. And Again, let's be clear about two things. One, that's okay because they made a deal with the devil, and at no point is that deal presented as a good and positive thing. The power that they have been granted, or perhaps more accurately, the power that has been inflicted upon them, is itself predatory, is itself reductive of the interiority of others. So Addie and Henry are simply inconsistently good at managing their conditions and resisting temptation. And secondly, this is kind of a less tangible point, but in a sense, it is okay that we obliviate the interiority of others because this is a fairy tale. And part of what makes a fairy tale interesting is the distinction between characters and bystanders, villagers, the people who don't really exist meaningfully, narratively, but who provide a sounding board for us to test the moral instruction or conclusion that the characters receive. Little Red Riding Hood doesn't have a mother in most versions of the story. Like, not really. Rather, she has an injunction to stay on the path and not to go into the woods. It is a moral force rather than a developed character. And that's kind of how this book works, too. We can shine a light on Tabitha or Remy or Vanessa for a moment, but really they are just bit players in our ongoing story. Because ultimately, this book has an extremely small cast. Addie, Luke, and Henry. 
we might expand that to include Estelle, but that's really as far as we can push it, I think. And even Estelle is dubious. So when our characters manipulate others, it isn't quite the same as manipulating another person. It might be thought of as the distinction between interacting with another player in an online video game and interacting with a non-player character who's there to give you some dialogue and maybe reward you for a quest. So we don't need to comprehensively censure Addie or Henry for their behaviours, at least not without some understanding of what the book is doing, and not without a certain empathy for their circumstances. But we should be mindful of their inclination towards others, and we should be mindful of how they police and patrol their own moral boundaries. We'll circle back to that with Henry being extremely judgmental of Addie in just a little bit. Let's skip ahead. I don't need to spend too much time with Vanessa because the mechanics of Henry's deal are already pretty explicit and it frankly sucks to see this poor woman be caught up like this. It is probably worth pointing out that Vanessa is first mentioned back in part two as a reason that Henry can't go to a particular coffee shop to meet with Miriam. We're also told back then that he lost another coffee shop because of someone called Milo. Milo doesn't appear in the rest of this novel, so we can only speculate that it was a similar relationship. Another emotional wreck left adrift on the shores of Manhattan by Henry Strauss. Robbie arrives at the last word, which I mention only so that we can put a pin in Robbie's emotional state and wonder aloud whether or not he is falling under Henry's spell or is already under Henry's spell or how he feels about Henry in general. Because when he first shows up, Henry notes, quote, There's an odd shine in Robbie's eyes, a glassiness Henry knows too well, and he wonders if Robbie's on something, or if it's simply been too long since he slept. And then, at the end of the chapter, we get this, quote, What are we drinking to? asks Henry. To new beginnings, says Robbie, eyes still shining as he fills the cups, end quote. And both instances are ambiguous. Neither instance is specifically the kind of glassiness, the smokiness, the mistiness that Henry observes in people who are under the influence of his power, his deal. Henry obviously covers the first one in the narrative voice, but we might wonder at this point to what extent Robbie too is being manipulated. We cut back to the present for a short scene back at the last word, and B's introduction of The Artifact, the exhibition that we'll spend a little time at later, and then we delve back into the past to follow Henry through a visit to the merchant and presumably his first, presumably his only threesome, I can only guess, knowing Henry Strauss as we do. Then into the next chapter, we return to Vanessa and we have our meeting with the Dean of the Theology School and we're exploring the boundaries of the deal. And it turns out that being enough is a sufficiently nebulous phrase to inspire a lot of devotion. This is tested further back at the last word as we confirm that B2 is under the influence, but still doesn't want to have sex with him because that's not what being enough is for her. More importantly, we get the introduction of B's thesis, the accidental and incomplete discovery of Addie as recorded in the artistic record, the ghost in the frame. We'll begin the next chapter by cutting back to the present with the realization that Henry has, in fact, just been telling this story to Addie, which is a weird acknowledgement of the structure of the novel itself that we only get a couple of times. We'll only acknowledge this transition between past and present a couple of times in the course of the book. Here, and when Henry says that Annie gets a certain look on her face when she's remembering, that is when we are getting the narration of another time and place, it is a potentially interesting idea, and I wonder how much it's a relic of a different kind of narrative approach, a more thorough and robust narrative approach, the possibility of which will be opened up later in the book. And I guess how much this is just a novelization of a common cinematic technique, a wipe from one scene to another. Addie confirms that the girl in the art is indeed her and says, quote, But isn't it wonderful, she says, to be an idea? They reach the high line just as the gust of wind blows through, the air still edged with winter, but instead of folding in against him, sheltering from the breeze, Addie leans into the wild gust, 
cheeks blushing with the cold, hair whipping around her face, and in that moment he can see what every artist saw, what drew them to their pencils and their paint, this impossible, uncatchable girl. And even though he's safe, both feet firmly on the ground, Henry feels himself begin to fall. End quote. Addie, enjoying the world, the experience of the wind and the cold and the being, separating herself from Henry and doing what she does best, doing what comes most naturally to her, inspiring others. Back in the past, Henry returns home to his family, and it's a genuinely heartbreaking, soft, bittersweet, terrible, awful scene. This simple kindness, the interest, the gentleness, the conspicuous presence of these things sketches so beautifully, so efficiently and effectively Henry's past relationship with his family. And if the implied past is a terrible, loveless thing, then the insubstantial present is perhaps all the worse. Though we can understand, I think, why Henry is leaning into it so much. From there, we tag along with Addie and Henry as they visit the Artifact, a series of art installations on the High Line, a real-life one-and-a-half-mile public park space created on a disused elevated rail line on the west side of Manhattan. And I must admit that on my first reading through this book, aware already that we're building tension and that things aren't perhaps quite what they seem, I expected something big from the Artifact, with all of its reference to sky and voice and memory, all of its artistic grandeur and purpose, but in the end, it is mostly just a poetic and imaginative date for our leads. We let Addie rhapsodize a little about the power of art and novelty, and we offer Henry an ironic little epiphany on the other side of several more chapters of flashback that we'll get to in just a moment. In the interests of efficiency, we'll skip over the rest of the relationship with Vanessa and their awful breakup scene, but we must pause at the beginning of chapter 13, October of 2013, and a brief scene that will, I hope, go some distance to explaining why it is that Robbie is the worst character in this book and the worst character in maybe any book I've read in the last five years. It's absolutely intentional, I will say. This is not a failure on Schwab's part. This is, if anything, a triumph on Schwab's part because the dramatic tension we get from him being simultaneously terrible and devoted to Henry is at least interesting. But wow, this pre-Halloween movie night screening of The Shining, complete with enforced cosplay and sulkiness and pettiness. It would be pretty irredeemable, even without the note that he stretches his birthday, quote, from days into weeks and sometimes into seasons, and quote, he is a monster. But the real purpose of the scene is the kiss between Robbie and Henry, and the realization that Henry's deal is poisoning actively all of his existing relationships, that the double-edged sword is beginning to cut deep, which is then compounded with swift and sharp-edged efficiency in the next chapter and the meeting with Tabitha. So let's zoom out a little and consider this entire section of the book as a kind of spiraling descent, punctuated in the present by Addie in a way that ought not perhaps to make us feel entirely better as she is demonstrating repeatedly her independence from Henry, both physically and emotionally. On the one level, it works, right? The inevitability with which Henry's confidence, his trust in his friends, his sense of his place in the world, the inevitability with which all these things unravel is genuinely difficult to read. It's, it's heartbreaking, particularly as the rhythm quickens and the desperation increases. And it's a strong argument, too, that we must not seek our sense of self in the hearts of others, because even if you find it, even for a moment, it isn't really ever yours. This, of course, is intentional, because as we're seeing this happen between clock wipes in 2013, we're seeing the same thing happen with Addie in 2014. And yes, it feels different, because 
Addie isn't contaminated by Henry's deal with Luke, but neither was Tabitha prior to the deal. Neither was Robbie prior to the deal. Neither were his parents or siblings or anyone else from whom Henry sought validation and confirmation. And this is it. This is the point at which the cracks appear. This is the point at which the careful reader might realize that something terrible is happening. This is the point at which the invisible life of Addie LaRue as a book offers some clarification, some anticipation of a criticism that is now almost inevitable. The reason that this story is a bad love triangle is that this story is not a love triangle. This story is two broken people compromised by their deals with the devil, incomplete in themselves, finding momentary solace in each other's arms. And that's not to say that Henry or Addie secretly dislike each other or are secretly terrible or that they aren't developing a real affection or that we shouldn't be invested in the hope of their relationship. But it's not a traditional romance. It's not a healthy romance. Let's skip ahead to New Year's Eve. With Henry talking to be asking what she would sell her soul for, she replies that she would want to be happy with herself and satisfied because, incidentally, B is the good to Robbie's bad in the sense that both are profound. Henry admits that he would wish to be loved and, quote, B looks at him, then eyes swirling with frost, and even through the mist, she looks suddenly immeasurably sad. You can't make people love you, Han. If it's not a choice, it isn't real. Henry's mouth goes dry. She's right. Of course, she's right. And he's an idiot, trapped in a world where nothing's real. End quote. So firstly, confirmation that this book knows that this behavior is not okay. We're not being tricked by an author with a flawed moral compass. We're not being set up for a bitter twist at the end where it's revealed that we are really the monsters all along. The story is exactly what the story seems to be. It's just performing some close-up magic to keep us distracted and to play on our expectations of genre. And that happens here, too, textually, within the story itself, because B is gently and wisely responding to Henry, but the greater question, the question that she answers because she's well-adjusted, that she wants to be happy with herself, the greater question is dodged because it's more important, right here and now, to tell Henry that you can't make someone love you. It's an incredibly skillful piece of writing and a beautiful character moment, though maybe by this point, with all the repetition in this part of the book, we're maybe starting to lose patience with Henry's immediate slip back into recrimination and self-loathing. There's no desire for, no attempt to seek peace and self-sufficiency of the sort that B just outlined. Instead, he misses the point. And because we're so close to his perspective in this moment, the narrative encourages us to miss it too. And lest we be too hard on Henry, let's note the quick mention at the beginning of the very short chapter 18, where we learn that resigned to his fate at the beginning of the year, he genuinely tries to be a better friend, a better brother, a better son. We will circle back to that at the very end of the book and perhaps offer some hope, some redemption to Henry Strass. Finally, we return to the present. We return to the artifact and we discover that Addie can make a mark through Henry. And again, this is Schwab's skill as a writer. We are so caught up in the moment, in the joy and the release and the affirmation of Addie's being as a person and as an artist, that we can celebrate this moment and perhaps not even notice that Addie is literally putting Henry to use as the pencil that she herself refused to be. The hand or the sharpening edge, that's Addie. But Henry, that guy, well, one big pencil if you ask me. They race home, and that is to say that Addie pulls Henry all the way back to his apartment, then gives him one of his own notebooks and one of his own pens without asking and begins to tell her story, and that is the end of part four of the book. 
We begin chapter five with another curated piece. And hey, now we can begin to speculate who is curating them, not least of all because this is the pencil sketch that B showed to Henry just a few chapters ago. I took the stars to bed by Matteo Renati, which in the small sketch in the book looks strikingly similar to Flaming June by Frederick Layton, the first Baron Layton, the 19th century English painter and sculptor. I will add a link to that in the show notes. Renati, of course, is a fictional artist who we are about to meet. But we begin this part of the book back in Vion in 1764, the 50th anniversary of Addie's deal with Luke, and this is the immediate aftermath of her encounter with her mother, of the sight of her crumbling home and her father's abandoned workshop that we saw previously. She goes in search of her father's grave and finds it. He died, we're told, in 1714, the year that Addie left. And though this scene is emotionally difficult for the reader, the real focus is Addie's lost memory of the time before her deal. Every memory since Luke is preserved perfectly, but the memory of Adeline is wearing away year by year. Her identity is changing. She replants the sapling next to Estelle's grave, honoring her wish that she should be cool in the shade. And though all of this immediacy is undeniably powerful, it is another in an ongoing series of farewells. And we conclude with this, quote, she walks down the road as they pour from their homes, children clinging to their mother's hands and men and women side by side, some faces new to her and others she knows. There is George Thoreau, and Roger's oldest daughter, and Isabel's two sons, and the next time Addie comes, they will all be dead, the last of her old life, her first life, buried in the same ten-meter plot. So, yes, it's a farewell to her father, and an act of service for Estelle, and for the old gods, perhaps, but in this last line, we see the repetition of that ten-meter plot idea that we established so early in the book, and to which we returned last week. So for all of Addie's emotional turmoil we have to wonder if anything has changed. And perhaps we must wonder again at what has driven her here about the origin of that inner storm that compelled her to return to Vion to ultimately become more secure in her choice. Or are those two different ideas? Addie then goes to Estelle's cottage, quote, Addie is sure that Estelle's things were taken up after her death, parceled out through the village just as her life was, deemed public property simply because she did not wed. Vion, her ward, because Estelle had no child. End quote. And again, we have to ask, really? Is that what Estelle's life was? Was it taken and distributed and chewed up by a thousand acts of obligation, of service? Does that match the Estelle that we met at the beginning of the book? Does Addie remember clearly? Does she recall these moments that we have already been told are eroding away? Or is this Addie affirming the choice that she made 50 years ago right here in the present? Is this her confirming her deal? Two specific things that I love through this sequence. We're back in young Adeline mode with the narrative voice occasionally throwing forward to the future, breaking the flow of events to give us a glimpse of what will be. When Addie returns, everyone she knew in Vion will be dead. When Addie returns, Estelle's house will have been swallowed by the trees. So I love that. And I love, too, the detail that she cannot light a fire but can keep one lit. That is some good rules of magic writing right there. So let's do some interpretation on Luke appearing here. And in fact, Let's not dance around Addie's motivation anymore, because I think we've arrived. I think we're finally here. Addie is present in Vion for reasons that she cannot articulate. She's forced to confront not just the passing of time and the death of those close to her, but the constraints of her early life, the 10-meter plot of her existence that would have swallowed her as surely as it swallowed her father and Estelle and Roger and almost everyone else that she knew. She draws the comparison with Estelle, that life of utility, of being used up by the town, and we know how Addie feels about being put to use by others. 
So the simple interpretation of this scene in another book is that this is Addie at her most sad, most lonely, most vulnerable. But this is the invisible life of Addie LaRue, and though that loneliness is a part of her, note her temptation to lean into the way that Luke says her name, quote, like a body seeking shelter from the storm, end quote. When he appears, when he speaks her name, he's dressed not in Parisian finery, but in the outfit he wore the night young Adeline made her deal. Everything about the visit to Vion is intended to bring the past into the present, to make it fresh and real once again. And when I say intended, I guess I mean doubly intended. On the one hand, by Schwab, and just as importantly, by Luke. I certainly read the inner storm that heralded her arrival in Vion as evidence of his influence over Addie. You'll note the repetition of storms and shelter in the earlier quote when he first says her name. Luke's association with storms was powerful before we ever got to Henry's story, by the way. The old gods, Estelle tells us right at the beginning of the book, are, quote, fickle and steady as moonlight on water or shadows in a storm, end quote, when he first appears to Addie and is taunting her about being a monster or a god. We get this line, quote, the shadows in the woods began to pull together, drawn like storm clouds, end quote. Adeline is wearing a dress the color of a storm at night when Luke meets her in Paris. When he returns after five years in 1724, we get, quote, I am the night itself. I see everything. He steps closer, carrying the scent of summer storms, the kiss of forest leaves. But that was a lovely dress you wore on my behalf. End quote. And so on, and so on. So if Luke is associated with the storm, and if the storm in Addie's head drove her to Vion, it seems to me that Luke might be trying a new strategy. Bring her back home, appear as he did on the night when he was promised her soul, and then frighten her, bully her into surrender. And then when she slaps him, he takes more immediate action. This is, I think, the first time that Luke has been given full characterization in a scene, which is to say that it's the first time he has been changed in his emotional state by Addie or by anyone. And as if to confirm Luke's power over Addie, he now exerts it fully, causing her pain, causing her to age. And once again, Addie refuses. Addie resists. Addie is defiant. And I read this entire sequence as a gambit by Luke to claim Addie's soul, as promised. It has been 50 years, after all. But he misreads her. He doesn't understand her, doesn't see her doesn't get that returning to Vion will not make her sad and lonely. It will only strengthen her certainty that she made the right choice. He doesn't get that trying to use the memory of Estelle against her will only make her more fierce. He doesn't get that demanding her surrender will only make her more resolute in her defiance. It's been 50 years, but he doesn't know Addie at all. But he will learn. And yes, let's put a pin in two thoughts here. One, much later, Luke will tell Addie that he has no power over promised souls, and that does not seem to be true. Two, it seems that Luke, when he wishes, can create storms in the mind. And we might well wonder, for how long has he been aware of Henry Strauss? Back in the present, Addie and Henry wake up. Henry clears a drawer for Addie's few possessions, and she looks at the notebook he began to fill the previous evening, and then, all at once, we're back in 1778, 14 years after Vion. Addie is on the beach at Fécamp, reading The Tempest, thinking about leaving France, but prevented from doing so today by the storm that is rolling in, and there, of course, is Luke. They take shelter from the storm in a church, and Luke engages in some theatrics to appeal this time to Addie's presumed sense of awe. 
And though I think we are no longer expecting any kind of strict theological definition from this book, it is interesting to see how much the voice constructs and navigates away from this space. The church is empty, it's devoid of presence and life. It is compared to a tomb. We get some hints from Luke, which of course we can't trust, that the devil is a new word for an old idea, but he's also switching between references to a singular Christian god and to multiple gods. It's dramatic, but it's further proof that the book is disinterested in this kind of analysis and that Luke does not yet understand Addy. This gambit, like the last, will fail. Even the promise of her ring, recreated by Luke, doesn't sway her. And she's absolutely clear on this point, quote, There it is again, one time salt and the next honey, and each designed to cover poison. End quote. She knows what he's doing. She sees it. Back in the present, Addie muses that she isn't jealous over the attention Henry is given by all those who fall under the power of his deal, and then he takes her to the Whispering Gallery at Grand Central Station, a real place located near the Oyster Bar on the lower level. He invites her to tell him a story, and Addie, almost inevitably given the starting point of this book, takes us back to Paris, the height of the French Revolution, two weeks after the storming of the Bastille, a city aflame. Addie is accosted by soldiers, but immediately rescued by Luc. He carries her magically to Florence, where he protests that he doesn't like war because it complicates the deals that he makes. She confronts him about his tactics, his gambit, his manipulation of her, and he replies, quote, A small shiver runs through her as he lifts his wine glass to his lips. Do not mistake this, any of it, for kindness, Adeline. His eyes go bright with mischief. I simply want to be the one who breaks you. End quote. And we might contrast here the developing intimacy between the two with Addie's relationship with Henry, which obviously there is a huge reader response to Addie and Luke. And it makes sense because in a book that is at its highest level about the ways in which women can be objectified and diminished in their humanity and reclaim that humanity, the ways in which a woman can be put to use or defy that utility, Luke has no use for Adeline that is extricable from her personhood, from her identity, from her soul. The evident irony is that even as he repeatedly demonstrates that he cannot see her, does not understand her, he is the only one who is consistently trying to. And if that attention is fundamentally malevolent, well, it's still attention, right? Even without the conventions of genre whispering in our ear, telling us stories where women earn mercy because they are loved or the darkness is redeemed by devotion, even just here in this rhythmic repetition, when Luke shows up and tries something new and Addie shakes it off with more and more ease, even here, we can feel a certain chemistry. Back in the present, Addie concludes her story as she and Henry drink beer in a pub, and when Addie suggests running out on the tab, Henry objects. Quote, No, says Henry. He won't remember you, but he'll remember me. I'm not invisible, Addie. I'm the exact opposite of invisible. Invisible. The word scrapes over her skin. I'm not invisible either, she says. You know what I mean. I can't just come and go. And even if I could, he says, reaching for his wallet, it would still be wrong. End quote. How easily we see the moral boundaries of another's life, the right and wrong of another's actions. Of course, Henry understands that it would be wrong to run out on the check, and worse, to leave without tipping their server, because he can see Addie's whole deal. And Addie can too, which is lovely. She has made her choices, she has made her peace, and now she needs to adjust to something that is actually unprecedented in her experience. If only Henry could turn some of that moral perspicacity on himself. The fight escalates suddenly, and then resolves just as quickly, though something important is clarified in its wake. Quote, She always thought it would be easy the opposite of Luke. 
I don't know how to be with someone, she whispers. I don't know how to be a normal person. His mouth quirks into a crooked grin. You're incredible and strong and stubborn and brilliant, but I think it's safe to say you're never going to be normal, end quote. Which is correct, but incomplete. For now, we'll settle for the understanding that the book is once again gesturing at the future. It's once again inviting the obvious conclusion that even without any further complication, being with Henry could never make Addie normal. It could never balance or normalize her uniquity. It could never counteract the influence of her deal on the rest of her life, and she must have more to her life than just Henry. It's to Henry's credit that he recognizes this, at least in part, and the book acknowledges that too, because the very next beat is Henry putting himself voluntarily this time to use, asking her for another story. It's evident that he already understands intuitively that one of the things that Addie gets from their relationship is an audience, is a pencil that she can hold, at least by proxy. We flash to Venice and Matteo and the creation of the sketch of Addie, and a similarly brief sketch of another encounter with Luke. This time we're not focused on how little he understands her, but how much she is coming to understand him. Choosing not to tell him about her new role as a muse to the great artists of the world, she can see the warning in his eyes. She can read his intent and so chooses to stay silent. Our Addie is gaining the upper hand. Back in the present, we get the brief respite of the open mic charity concert, which I have to say sounds genuinely terrible. Addie recounts Henry's transcription of her stories, but is now nervous about the fragility of happiness and the looming threat of the darkness. All at once, we're in the National Gallery in 1827, with Addie enjoying the evidence of her inspiration as manifested in Matteo's work. Luke appears, and after some of their usual banter, Addie is unusually indiscreet, celebrating her victory. Quote, Luke's eyes flash a sickly, stormy green. Don't be absurd, he sneers. Gods are known to everyone. But remembered by so few, she counters. How many mortals have met you more than twice, once to make a deal and once to pay the price? How many have been a part of your life as long as I have? Addie flashes a triumphant smile. Perhaps that's why you cursed me as you did, so you would have some company so someone would remember you. End quote. And Luke demonstrates his power, his true nature, perhaps, by taking her immediately to Vienna, where Luke claims the soul of Ludwig van Beethoven, who really did die on March 26th, 1827. But here, as Luke appears unveiled as a shadow full of teeth, as he plucks the soul from the composer's body, as Addie feels for the first time in years real fear, even here, there is masterful subtlety in the storytelling. There is a counterpoint to what is happening on the page, because... Addie taunts Luke before he takes her to Vienna that they are not so different. Luke reveals himself to demonstrate exactly how different they are, and in smoke and fury he takes Beethoven's soul, and even in that moment we are told, quote, Luke's hand, she will learn, is always subtle. They will see his work and call it sickness, call it heart failure, call it madness, suicide, overdose, accident, end quote. Even in the aftermath of Luke's most conscious and deliberate and conspicuous violence, Luke himself will not be present. He will leave no identifying mark on the world. And as Addie is talking about the old gods being forgotten and speculating as to his loneliness to their similarity, the story deftly illustrates that, yes, she is right. Even as Luke is, again, indulging his sense of the theatrical, Addie is more right even than she knows. Though she is frightened, she stumbles back through the darkness, back to London, back to the banks of the Thames, even in that moment, she is right. 
back in the present again. Henry takes the Polaroids of Addie without much success. And then using Henry as a proxy again, she takes a picture all her own. It's a beautiful little vignette, and we'll revisit that a little later. In Vion in 1854, Addie's 140th anniversary, she sees for the first time how the passage of history has altered her home, how it has changed its geography, and at least one small part of that change is Addie's fault because the sapling that she planted over Estelle's grave has now grown into a tree, shading that grave. And here, the, the book doesn't invite us to pause. We might wonder at this mark left by Addie on the world, a thing created, a lasting change made. And we might wonder if the transplanting of the sapling is more like theft than the act of creation, therefore more compatible with Addie's existence as she understands it, though it is certainly more deliberate and more conscious than that. It was done with the desire to create a lasting effect, after all. And after visiting the church so recently with Luke, we might wonder if there's something about the power of the cemetery, this holy ground next to the small chapel of Vion, that prevents Luke's curse from taking such complete hold. We might wonder if, because there is no direct intended meaning, no message, no artistic statement left by the tree, it is more perhaps like an idea, if the sapling is like the metaphorical seeds and the growth all its own. All the same, it's odd that the narrative voice seems to neither highlight nor dismiss this detail, though in the very next scene, Addie will lament her inability to restore Estelle's cottage. She'll demonstrate that she can't stack four rocks without them collapsing and returning to where they were. She'll demonstrate the power of ideas by spooking a kid who was playing in the ruins of Estelle's hut. We're thinking a lot about the boundaries of Addie's curse, is what I'm saying, but we're not focusing on one of the most interesting demonstrations of her influence in the world. Luke, of course, appears, this time apparently confused by her pilgrimage to Vion. In fact, that's not the only thing that seems a little less certain about Addie. Even here, you'll note, he tells her, quote, I could bury you here, beside Estelle. Plant a tree, make it grow over your bones, end quote. Which, given our discussion of the significance of the tree and the ways in which Luke's influence on the world is wiped away, washed out to mundanity, leaving no specific fingerprint behind, well, this seems to be another way in which the two are more similar than dissimilar. And we recognize how things have changed at the end of the chapter when she once again rejects his invitation to surrender and this time he is amused. He kisses her cheek and he departs. Back in Brooklyn, we celebrate Henry's birthday with Bee and Robbie, who again demonstrates his awfulness as Addie tries again to win him over with an excess of flattery. And then Toby Marsh sings the song inspired by Addie and she flees from the venue, overwhelmed by the immediacy of her feelings for him because... This isn't neatly curated art, boxed and delineated and described in formal terms. This is real and raw and present, and she remembers. In fact, she remembers them all. She cites her mother and Remy and Sam, and now Toby again, forcing his way back into the present. Henry catches her outside the venue and asks, quote, Do you still have feelings for him? And she wants to be honest, to say that of course she does. She never gets closure, never gets to say goodbye. No periods or exclamations, just a lifetime of ellipses. Everyone else starts over. They get a blank page, but hers are full of text. People talk about carrying torches for old flames, and it's not a full fire, but Addie's hands are full of candles. How is she supposed to set them down or put them out? She has long run out of air. But it is not love. It is not love, and that is what he's asking. No, she says. He just... It caught me off guard. I'm sorry. End quote. And this is a new dimension to Addie, I think. A new perspective on her 
emotional burdens, on the countless memories she carries, of the countless lovers that she hasn't been able to set aside because she can't forget. She can't let the passage of time erase and soften and erode the good and the bad alike to moderate what was once urgent and exhilarating. And the acknowledgement that she has long run out of air, that these candles that she is holding are already consuming all the love that she has, all that she is capable of, Oh, but not love, right? Because that's an important clarification that she inserts into her internal monologue before giving Henry exactly the answer that he wants to hear, whether it's true or not. Again, the book is telling us exactly what is true and simultaneously encouraging us not to pay attention. In 1872, Luke steals Addie away from the train to Berlin in order to take her to Munich to see Tristan and Isolde, and this time the transit through the darkness, which she now realizes is Luke somehow. That moment of darkness isn't just frightening, but is also full of freedom and adventure. They watch the performance together and then walk through the streets of Munich, closer than they've ever been to a casual conversation. Luke tells her that all great art comes with a cost. And that she knows that because, well, and here we invert the earlier scene, right? Because they are not so different. Quote, I am nothing like you, she says, but there is not much venom in the words. I am a muse and you're a thief. He shrugs. Give and take, he says, and nothing more. But when it's late and he is gone and she is left to wander, the opera plays on perfectly preserved inside the prism of her memory and Addie wonders softly, silently, if their souls were a fair price for such fine art. End quote. And it's an open question here, I guess, how much Addie has changed, because it's pretty straightforward to read this as Addie being hardened over time, or perhaps we might say elevated over time, that she is devaluing the human soul in comparison with great, enduring, magnificent art, with the finest creation of human ingenuity and human craft. But I'm not so sure that this isn't who Addie has been all along. This is just her confronting it, accepting it, verbalizing it. Back in the present, Henry is distant during the 4th of July party for reasons which will become evident in the very near future, and Addie remembers the last time she saw Luke, and we are perhaps so surprised by this sudden flash of a sex scene in New Orleans, all black silk sheets and sharp teeth and the urge to surrender, that we might not pay attention to the timeline. This is some more close-up magic, because even if we do pay attention to the timeline, even if we're not distracted by this vision of Addie and Luke having sex... We might not remember the previous chapter, just before the flashback to Tristan and Isolde, that Henry turned 29. And here, Addie tells us that she hasn't seen Luke in almost 30 years. Probably a coincidence. Probably nothing to that at all. Though it's probably not a coincidence that, at the end of the scene, grateful that Henry is not pressing her for more details, Addie turns on the shower and, quote, They sit across from each other beneath the icy stream, and Addie closes her eyes and tips her head back against the tub and listens to the makeshift storm. End quote. There's that storm again. And finally, the last chapter of this week's reading, as Addie celebrates the new year, the new century, for all but the very most pedantic, alone in the Cotswolds, playing in the snow which remains perfect despite her. And here we see a different kind of art, a purity, an anti-art, if you will, a play that does not erode the world, a play that can stay forever new and fresh. Luke appears and takes her back inside and tells her, echoing her words of not so long ago, that he saw an elephant in Paris. And here, at the brink of this new age, of this new world, as La Belle Epoque reaches new heights in Paris, they sit together, quote, like friends, or at least like foes at rest, and talk. Quote, she does not remember drifting off, but when she wakes, it is early in the morning, and the cottage is empty, and the fire little more than embers. A blanket has been cast over her shoulders, and beyond the window, the world is white again. 
and Eddie will wonder if he was ever there. End quote. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that it doesn't really matter whether he was there or whether she imagined it, because the conclusion is the same. Luke is something to her now, is someone to her now, more than he has ever been, either in actuality or in fantasy. And we must remember, too, that Addie does not dream. Of course, there's the echo of the previous evening's adventures in the snow now, too, in this fresh morning, the world restored to white because Addie cannot leave a mark. And we might wonder, now that the world has been restored again, if Addie had, in the depth of the night, left a different kind of mark. So this obviously has turned into a bit of a long show, as expected, but it was, to me, an extremely engaging reading. The slow burn of Addie and Luke changing around each other, orbiting each other, is, I think, absolutely compelling. And if there is slightly too much Henry in part four and slightly not enough Henry in part five, the book is doing a good, if somewhat belated, job of lining up for the conclusion on making a new promise that it will deliver on even if it won't perhaps deliver on all the promises that have been made thus far. That belated quality, as I mentioned, is, I think, a real problem when we're considering the reader response to the book. Because when you spend half a book behaving as though your story is a love triangle, behaving as though your reader knows what the book will be, keeping your secrets, hoarding your late reveals, then you are making a promise that you will not fulfill. Your reader will inevitably expect that story to pay out. But as I hope I've demonstrated, particularly in this reading, this book is much darker, is much wilder, is much less traditional than we might expect. And for me, at least, that really pays out. That leads to an unforgettable climax, which we'll get to, of course, next week. One last thing before we wrap up. I was wondering out loud recently about the bonus episodes for our Addie LaRue series, and I have watched a couple of pretty bad movies, and I have given it some more thought, and I'm just not sure that there's anything right. I mean, we could talk about Groundhog Day, but Really, it's not going to connect as powerfully as we might like to Addie LaRue. And I've received over the last month or so some really interesting emails and questions about the podcast, about this approach to literature, about genre, various other subjects. So I think for the bonus episode for Addie LaRue, in the absence of a really satisfying film, and because I will not watch Vox Lux again, we're going to do a good old-fashioned live Q&A over on the Next Word Discord, probably on Wednesday the 13th of March, but stay tuned for confirmation of that date. That's going to be right after we wrap up Addie LaRue, right before we start Catherine Kerr's Celtic fantasy dagger spell. So if you have questions or comments or thoughts of any kind about Addie LaRue, about any of the books that we've covered so far, about any of the ideas or perspectives or approaches that we've taken to reading and interpreting literature here on the podcast, then please get in touch. Either join the Patreon and come hang out live or send your questions and comments to starsandswordspod at gmail.com. I anticipate a wide-ranging conversation, our own version of Addie's Parisian Salon or the snow-shrouded cottage in the Cotswolds. That's going to do it for this week and for this extra-length reading. Next week, the relatively brief parts six and seven of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue and a remarkable conclusion to an unforgettable book, which will, of course, release on March 10th on Addie's birthday. So I'm going to compress my schedule a little bit this week and make sure that I get that new episode out early on Sunday morning, if not Saturday night, rather than the usual spot late on Sunday evening. Hopefully we'll have the whole day of Addie's birthday to celebrate. I hope you'll be able to join me. And until then, you're incredible and strong and stubborn and brilliant, but I think it's safe to say you're never going to be normal. Thanks for listening.